You are listening to the Israel Connection on JE Community Radio in Melbourne, Australia. My name is David Schulberg, bringing you another episode of this weekly radio program that provides analysis and insight with important interviews and discussion about Israel. In the short term, Israel has agreed to a ceasefire with Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Toward the end of the last round of violence emanating from Gaza, Professor Uzi Rabi gave his assessment of the situation to a media briefing. Professor Rabi is the director of the Moshe Dayan Center for Middle Eastern Studies at Tel Aviv University. Among other topics, Professor Rabi's research focuses on radical Islamic movements such as Palestinian Islamic Jihad and Hamas. Islamic Jihad has been left alone in this whole saga, on this operation. He entertained himself that Hamas, the big movement that running uh, is running Gaza for all reasons purposes, would side him and actively would support him. It was not the case. Hamas was rather actually practicing the art of fence-seating, and it remained actually Islamic Jihad versus Israel which is this proportion uh, when it comes to the military might, technology, and stuff. Islamic Jihad, in my opinion, after actually killing uh, an, an Israeli uh, civilian, would see that as a suffice point to actually get out. And uh, preserving his legitimacy, at least in the eyes of many Palestinians. I'm not sure that Israel would let it go, why Hamas preferred to actually stay out of it. Hamas has a totally different agenda in comparison to Islamic Jihad. Why? Hamas, as I said before, he is running Gaza. He is the leader politically, economically, uh, meaning uh, on two million people in Gaza. He has a different agenda because he would like to have a foothold in Judea and Samaria and in due time actually to replace Abu Mazen, the old uh, leader of Fatah movement. And they would like to turn Hamas into the unquestionable leader of Palestine. They are also having a kind of an influence in East Jerusalem. They would like to play out with this Al-Aqsa thing and recently they fired rockets on Israel from Lebanon. But this is the story of Gaza. What Israelis are afraid of, and I dare say some other Arab states in the region, is that all these proxies are being activated by Iran. They are trying actually to just build up sort of a thick belt around Israel, including Judea and Samaria, Gaza, Jerusalem, Lebanon, with the hope of fanning the flame between Israelis and Arabs in Israel proper. This is the plan. Iran is up there. We are dealing with many proxies, and what Israel is trying to do at this stage is to make the most of it. It is just tactics, but we know that there is in the offing kind of a big game, which is going to be turned into kind of a real war. And basically, 
What Israel tried to do now is just to settle scores with uh, Islamic Jihad. This is, by the way, a very, very extremist organization. They don't have whatsoever agenda in the sense of running people, in the sense of conducting the day daily life of uh, society. They are uh, a very, very strict ex extremist uh, uh, group, which was founded in uh, uh, 1981, which means actually more than 40 years ago. They are ultimate proxies of Iran. They had, were very heavily influenced by the 1979 uh, revolution in Iran. And for Iran, this is uh, actually kind of a win-win because they're going to have a proxy next to Israel, sitting side by side to Israel. I would say uh, act in accordance with what Iran's dictates are. Now we stand here. This is not the end of the game. We have another round here. Every round between Israelis and Palestinians is being actually judged in how big or uh, small is the time interval or time spent between this round and the next one. So we can't say at this stage how successful it was in the side uh, or when it comes to Israel. We definitely know that Israel actually has managed to come up with kind of a very, very high quality. If we talk about the military technology, there was a message very, very harsh that was delivered not only to Islamic Jihad, but also to others, including Hamas. Look at what Israel can achieve in no time while dealing with this military technology. But having said that, I must say, and I, I have to be very honest with you. Islamic Jihad is just a small part of the problem. It is in Gaza. It has sort of tense relationships with Hamas. And I, I, I try to explain why, because Hamas is having kind of a different agenda for the time being. We have the Fatah and Abu Mazen in Ramallah. They are their rivals. And basically, we have kind of a very dismembered, uh, disoriented uh, Palestinian uh, society. There are internal struggles here. But once it comes to Israel, Israel should make sure that at least when it comes to all these weak links in the thick belt that was organized or being organized by Iran, whenever Israel has uh, an opportunity to hit at least one chain or a link in this uh, great chain, I think that Israel won't hesitate. Israel took the initiative this time. Israel caught them by surprise. I'm talking about Islamic Jihad and Hamas. Uh, this is why Israel has an advantage. Until now, more often than not, Israel was responding to something that they did. What Israel is trying to do is to change this equation by which to say that we are not waiting for you to do something and we respond. We are free, actually, to go on with our initiatives and we are going to go after those guys who are running this whole operation of rockets, threatening the northern uh, of Israel and uh, the center of Israel, as we see, uh, as we saw uh, today. This is where we are. Many questions actually could come to the fore, definitely. But at this stage, 
This is the round, in my opinion, paradoxically speaking, because Islamic Jihad has managed actually to kill an Israeli civilian. For him, it would be kind of a very nice and easy outlet from this whole saga because he hasn't got actually too much power to go on. Uh, it remains to be seen how Israel is going to act. I think that uh, it is a very limited round, but it managed to see that Israel might change its modus operandi. The message was delivered. We'll have to wait and see actually to understand. We would know how effective it was only by measuring the time span between this round and the next one, as I said before. But we should not forget, actually, that this is just kind of a local game. We have the big game. Um, basically, Hamas is there, Hezbollah is there. And we are looking uh, forward to see, actually, what's going on in Lebanon because there's a joint action. It depends how you're going to deal with that. It could be mano a mano, Israel versus Gaza, a sort of a bilateral conflict. But in my opinion, unfortunately, it became much, much wider. And as I said, this is something that we have to just take into account and we'll wait to see uh, how things are going to be played out. I speak now with Mordechai Nissan, a former Israeli professor and scholar of Middle Eastern studies at the Rothberg International School of the Hebrew University of Jerusalem, whose latest book is The Crack-Up of the Israeli Left. Mordechai tells us how Israel has been dealing with the terror assaults against it from Palestinian Islamic Jihad. He explains why it has served Israel to eliminate some of the commanders of this terrorist organization. He also says that in Israel we are witnessing the post-Zionist left trying to unravel the Jewish state. I welcome uh, back Mordechai Nissan to the Israel Connection on JA Community Radio, coming to you from Melbourne, Australia. Good to see you again, Mordechai. Thank you, David. Nice to see you. Now, I want to discuss uh, what uh, Israel has been experiencing, fortunately, with the ceasefire coming at the end of uh, last week. Did Israel provoke the situation that unfolded with Gaza by deliberately targeting these leading members of the organization Palestinian Islamic Jihad? Was it that necessary for Israel to do this at, at this time? Israel is in an ongoing war with the Palestinian terrorist organizations, one of which is Palestinian Islamic Jihad. The Israeli army and security forces have been battling with them in Judea and Samaria, Israel's effort to apprehend terrorists, uh, prevent terrorist actions. And so the idea of attacking Palestinian Islamic Jihad commanders in Gaza is part of the overall the scope of the war between Israel and the PIG, Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Attacking the commanders per se is not new, it's just a different level, a different focus, different kind of targets. People who are unaware of what's going on in Judea and Samaria in terms of Israel's ongoing, permanent, daily, literally daily, fight to uncover terrorists, apprehend terrorists, eliminate terrorists, therefore consider Israel's attack in Gaza as something of uh, a different uh, venue. No, it's part of the same venue against the same enemy. And in respect to the fighting the Palestinian Islamic Jihad to go after their commanders would seem to be a very reasonable target. But despite the fact that uh, there were some innocent citizens that were caught in the crossfire, this is just 
part of the collateral damage, uh, would you say? Uh, th this question of collateral damage and innocent civilians really has to be seen in a broad framework. Seemingly, uh, what happens in other war theaters, be it the Ukraine uh, or be it in Afghanistan or elsewhere, somehow is not on the radar screen of international media and political and diplomatic forces. So what Israel does somehow is highlighted. Why is it highlighted? David, there's an idea that somehow the Jewish people are credited with being a very moral people. And it's our biblical heritage that has taught us and ingrained in us, in the Jewish people, tremendous moral concern for other people. And, and that's considered to be really one of the hallmarks of what we are as a people. And we're all proud of that. But we're in war against an enemy for whom there's no limitations of uh, weaponry and targets and the like. And so here, when we are committed to defend our country and people by targeting our enemy, the idea that there might be innocent uh, collateral damage is something which is not abnormal, abnormal in any war situation. If a terrorist is targeted and the Israeli aircraft en route to attack that terrorist and eliminate him sees uh, a little boy in the vicinity of the terrorist, the mission may be uh, canceled. But if the mission is not canceled, it means that the terrorist is finished. But if the mission is canceled, it means the terrorist may the next minute after our mission is canceled fire a rocket and Khalila uh, kill an Israeli boy in Steyot. Our moral concern has to be weighted against our national security concerns. Not to allow an enemy who's committed to murder us to stay alive, that's not a moral consideration. That terrorist is a person who, from our point of view, must be eliminated. You know, in Israel, we are hardened, hardened by the fact that we're in a war situation ever since the state was established. And when you're in a war situation and you recognize that war means that you have an enemy and that your enemy intends to harm you, murder you, then you are hardened, not morally, you still are a moral human being, but you're hardened by the necessity of what must be done in order to protect your people. And so if Israelis seem to be very generous in their morality and uh, somehow consider that the Arabs don't have any right to live, that's not what it's about. It's about our right to live, which is the national priority, and essential imperative for every human being. And that's what we're at. Yeah, so it was certainly uh, significant that uh, six top Islamic Jihad officials were assassinated. I understand that uh, the IDF uh, was very successful as well in deterring Hamas from participating in any of the fighting, which was uh, a major achievement in this particular round of conflict. It's a very odd set of circumstances. Yes, Israel was concerned that Hamas not participate. So it's as if Hamas was given some kind of an immunity. Not that Hamas doesn't have a larger military arsenal than Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Not that Hamas is more moderate than Palestinian Islamic Jihad. Not that Hamas is a far greater strategic and tactical danger to us. But it was given immunity by the fact of Israel being concerned to limit the scope of the war or the fighting just to the PIJ. In respect to which Hamas could sit on the sidelines and literally do nothing and continue to build its arsenal and continue to foment its hatred of Jews in the state of Israel and prepare for a round which will come sometime in which it will actively participate and endanger our people. 
So the idea that Hamas was excluded, so to speak, from the fighting would look to be a tactical gain for Israel that its enemy was limited to the Palestinian Islamic Jihad. But Hamas was exempt, leaving it time to reflect and build and plan and, and propagate and so on its ongoing war against the Jews and Zionism. We gain something in a very brief period of time, one might say, but in the long run, we're allowing our enemy not only to survive, but to be safe and to benefit from what Israel allows them to do, which is to receive oil and be able to send its people to work in the Israeli economy and so on. So we shouldn't misunderstand this, that somehow there's a kind of understanding between Israel and Hamas for the benefit of both sides, and that somehow this is no longer part of the war equation. The war equation is on the table, as it has been before, and likely will stay there. It certainly uh, is an achievement by the IDF um with its intelligence accuracy to make sure that it only hit Islamic Jihad targets and not Hamas ones. I don't think people are really uh, aware of this. It, it might sound uh, simple, but uh, it's not just the idea of looking for different color uniforms. It's a vastly complicated intelligence and tactical operational endeavor, which uh, cannot be overlooked. Uh, that is completely true. Israel's intelligence capabilities, its operational capabilities, its tactical capabilities are honestly extraordinary. There's like an ongoing joke in Israel which says that when the uh, Palestinian terrorist at night dreams of what he wants to do tomorrow morning, Israel already knows. I mean, Israel already knows what he dreams at night, what he intends to do the following morning in conducting an attack against Israelis. So we're very proud of this, and we're very, we're very encouraged by these capabilities. Uh, absolutely extraordinary. And as uh, Prime Minister Netanyahu said, you know, nothing's hidden from us. We see you everywhere. We know where you are. And that is literally the case. But after we are very satisfied with that state of affairs, we should realize that we haven't really caused so much damage or weakness to the enemy. When some buildings are destroyed and when some rocket launchers are destroyed and some arms depots are destroyed, that doesn't mean within three, four weeks they're not restored and rebuilt and rearmed. So Israel's military achievements in this respect would seem to be very much of the short-term nature and not beyond that. And even the commanders, senior commanders who were eliminated, who were assassinated, will be replaced by others who will be more or less of the same caliber and certainly of the same ideological religious intent on continuing to conduct the war against Israel. I'm a bit uncomfortable with excessively praising our abilities, which are a fact, because that can lead to a certain sense of uh, self-satisfaction, which somehow hides us from the reality of ongoing danger and warfare. How, how did uh, Israelis generally weather this uh, episode? Did you have to go into a bomb shelter at any stage yourself, Mordechai? Uh, we live in Jerusalem, and no, we didn't go any, into any bomb shelter, even though there was a rocket fire just outside of Jerusalem, but not uh, in uh, near the city per se. So the war in that respect didn't affect us, but it affects mainly the people in the south, in the vicinity of the Gaza Strip, northern Negev, western Negev, and uh, what's called the... Uh, 
and the plain area, so to speak, Rehovot, which was hit, Ashdod on the coast, uh, Ashkelon on the coast, south of Tel Aviv. The country was suffering from this. But you know, David, I would say that as I intimated regarding my comment about morality, and we have to be realistic and not theoretically moral, so too with the danger and the price of the warfare. Israelis like to think of themselves, and quite so, as uh, tough guys, They're tough people. They can endure and they can suffer. And they can get through and contend with any danger. And that's true. But there's a certain cultural climate in the country of recent years, which is far softer than that, in which not only are we concerned for the life of every Israeli, which is how we should be concerned, but that we're concerned that nothing absolutely should come in the way of our daily life, even if it's a hostile war situation. We're concerned that everybody must be protected to the nth degree, even if they're not per se in the line of fire. And we have to be not romantic or sympathetic. We must be aware of the situation. We must teach our people that they can endure this and that the country is not falling apart, even if a rocket lands in the vicinity of Be'er Sheva. The country is not going to stop functioning. The Air Force is going to keep functioning. We shouldn't think that a, a few rockets somehow will cause great disruption, great damage, or a great loss of life. None of this happened. There was not a great loss of life or damage or destruction. And so even though it's a difficult situation to endure uh, a siren, which informs you that a rocket is on its way to your town or village, that's not a pleasant situation whatsoever. It can be traumatic. But when all is said and done, we have the defensive and offensive capabilities to deal with this threat. I speak here in very safe surroundings, so uh, I empathise with 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 what you situation you're in, the predicament you're in, and it happens every now and again, and you have to be ready for it. Apparently, Israeli forces have exchanged fire with armed Palestinians in the West Bank again this morning. As tensions uh, remain still high after Israel agreed to this ceasefire with Gaza-based Palestinian Islamic Jihad, the report said that undercover Israeli troops entered the northern West Bank city of Jenin and the adjacent Jenin refugee camp and clashed with locals after being discovered. And shortly after, the military sent in reinforcements, apparently. These incursions are taking place almost every day. You were referring to the battle against Islamic Jihad, not just in Gaza, but in the West Bank. Is the situation sustainable where the tensions remain so high between Israel and the Palestinians? Israel's military capabilities are very formidable. And the bottom line of that is the willingness of our youth to go to the army, to train in combat units, and take on any mission, any responsibility, however dangerous, in order to secure the life of Israelis and the country as a whole. These young men, primarily men, a few girls, these men are absolutely extraordinary. They are fearless, they are courageous, they are patriotic, they are skilled, trained, and they will be sent on any mission and carry the mission to the end. And therefore, when Israeli troops from the elite combat units go into a Palestinian refugee camp in Jenin, as you mentioned, or in Shechem, in Nablus, and so on, 
and Tulkarem, Tubas. These young men are trained to deal with any danger. And we have been fortunate to be blessed with such young men. Believe me, we are blessed. The Jewish people are blessed to have them. Someone was once asked many years ago, tell me, how is it that after thousands of years or hundreds of years, Jews weren't soldiers and now they've become great soldiers? And his answer was, talent goes where it's needed. And we need soldiers now in this period of our Jewish history. And so this is the first point about Israel's ability to contend, to persevere in the war against Palestinian terrorism in the West Bank, as you say. And I want to mention here, there are a number of lessons to be drawn from this. And the one lesson that I want to emphasize here is the lesson of territorial withdrawal produces more danger and terrorism. And this is the lesson of the Oslo Accord from 1993. Israel handed over part of Judea and Samaria to Palestinian rule. And Arafat was permitted to come here with thousands of his fighters slash terrorists. And Israel afforded them, gave them arms. And Israel believed that they would be a trustworthy partner in building peace. And it turned out that Arafat, his successor, Mahmoud Abbas, Abu Mazen, were, for all intents and purposes, deceivers and liars. And they took what they could get from Israel, meaning land, arms, recognition, and the like. And they said, no, we will continue the war to, in their terms, liberate Palestine from the Zionist occupation. The Oslo Accord was a disaster. It was miscalculation. And so, too, the withdrawal from Gaza in 2005 and so too the withdrawal from Lebanon in 2000, we have to realize that terrorism spurts up, expands, escalates, where Israel is no longer there. And so when we withdraw from an area and the Israeli army is not there, more terrorism surfaces. And the fact that we are now fighting in Palestinian camps and towns and villages in the West Bank is not because Israel didn't hand over territory, it handed over territory but once it became, became clear to Israel that the territory is exploited for ongoing terrorism, so the Israeli army was ordered to return to those areas from which we had withdrawn. We withdrew from them in 1994, 1995, 1997, 1998, and so on. We learned that to withdraw from territory is a prescription if we can't learn that lesson after all of these terrible examples we've experienced, then we have to examine the quality of our leadership. What more can I say? Yeah, of course, the, uh, we also know that the Palestinian Authority has abdicated on its uh, responsibilities, and so it's up to Israel to, um, to manage what's going on in the West Bank. Now, later this week, Mordechai, a controversial nationalist parade will take place in Jerusalem including a provocative, seems to be provocative procession through the old city's Muslim quarter, the so-called flag march involving mostly right-wing youths under heavy police protection, I believe about 2,000 police will be in attendance, tends to stoke tensions annually between Israel and the Palestinians. In 2021, the Jerusalem march served as a pretext for the Hamas terror group to launch an 11-day conflict, dubbed by Israel as Operation Guardian of the Walls, um, a more serious conflict than the one we've just seen um, a week or so ago. Could this once again stoke the flames, this march? 
Well, the Jerusalem March comes to celebrate Israel's liberation of Jerusalem in the 1967 Six-Day War. It's a celebration for the fact that we turn to the holy city, the capital city of thousands of years of Jewish history. So this march is a popular march. It's not decided upon or authorized per se by the government. It's from the grassroots, the people who believed that the homecoming of the Jewish people to the land of Israel included the homecoming to the city of Jerusalem. So there will be this march. Uh, Hamas, uh, Fatah, uh, Islamic Jihad, they don't need any particular provocation in order to vent their anger against Jews. A few weeks ago, it was the Muslim month of Ramadan. And the Israelis were very anxious and concerned and worried about what will happen during the month of Ramadan because of an intimate connection in Islam between the mosque and the gun. And so once the Muslims are strengthening their faith in Allah and praying in the mosque, there's a certain tendency that they feel they should demonstrate their faith by going out to attack Jews. This is something historically valid in their eyes. So if it was Ramadan, they were provoked. They provoked themselves and there was violence against Jews. Now it's the Jews to march and they'll say this is provocative. This kind of interpretation no longer counts, you know. We as we for what we are as Jews were provocative. So we don't have to worry about that, but we have to be honest with ourselves and to deny, to deny our connection to Jerusalem and say, no, we shouldn't walk in the streets of Jerusalem or we shouldn't enter the Damascus Gate in the eastern part of the city, or we shouldn't walk through what is called the Muslim quarter in the old city, because this is provocative. Let me mention to you, David, that Jews have been living in the Muslim quarter. I'm not only talking historically, which is a fact, but in our time, in the last number of decades, Jews have purchased apartments or, or repurchased from what were originally Jewish owners. Jews are living now in the Muslim quarter, and some of us tend to call that quarter the mixed quarter meaning there's the Jewish quarter, the Armenian quarter, the Christian quarter, and people say the Muslim quarter, which is true, but it's a mixed quarter historically, and so too now. So when Israelis in Jerusalem, they will walk to the so-called Muslim quarter, let us know that in the Muslim quarter, there are Jews living there. Uh, I know people who live there. They're provided with security by the security agencies and so on. Their life is, uh, could be dangerous. It has been dangerous. The young people in particular, not only, but the young people among our Jewish population in Israel is filled with confidence, patriotism, and courage to tell themselves and to tell the world that we have come home. We've come home in order to demonstrate that Jewish history is an ongoing testimony to Jewish survival and pride in who we are and where we are. And so this is what will take place in the Jerusalem March. Well, let's uh, hope we don't see another conflagration, another episode with uh, violence uh, at the end of this week. Now, you're uh, you're a bit of a writer in your retirement, Mordechai. Uh, you were telling me before we started that uh, you're writing a lot more in Hebrew and English these days, but you did write a piece at the end of March uh, where you said, uh, in Israel we're witnessing the post-Zionist left trying to unravel the Jewish state. And you said further that a popular mania has engendered havoc that's disproportional to the judicial reforms, which are corrective but not revolutionary. And this uh, issue with the judicial reforms seems to be going on forever and a day. 
Now, what did you uh, have to say back then and uh, what's been happening since that um, has tempered the situation, if it has? The uh, Israeli government, which came into power at the beginning of this year, 2023, was committed to judicial reform. It's not a new subject whatsoever. There's been much talk and uh, advocacy for judicial reform over the decades. But now a government came in and a minister of justice came in, Yariv Lavin, who was committed to do something about it. Why, ju why judicial reform? It's a very complex and large topic. Let me just mention briefly a few points. The point is that the Supreme Court of Israel considers itself to be above the Knesset, the elected parliament of the country. It considers itself to have superior authority, superior moral clarity, than the judgment of the people who were elected by the Israeli voters. In respect of which, this is an anti-democratic position. The democracy is the people rule, and the people rule through the representatives who they elect. But the Supreme Court believes that it has a transcending right to annul laws, annul ministerial orders, cancel policies, and so on, in a way in which became out of proportion to the proper place of a court in a democratic system. And therefore, the reform is designed to limit, not eliminate, or limit the power of the Supreme Court to intervene in legislation, parliamentary legislation, and government decisions. And the, and the mechanism as to how that should be limited has been discussed, but the opposition, which means basically the center and left on the political map, refuse any reform. And why? Because the Supreme Court has been a voice for the ideological left in the country. And the right, the political right on the map, has been unable to bring to bear its role in democratic elections upon the decisions of the Supreme Court. And so the Supreme Court considers itself, as I said, stronger than the Knesset. I'll give one example. There are many examples. One example is there's a law in Israel which says that no candidate can run for election in a part for a party if he does not accept that Israel is a Jewish and democratic state. And so there are Arab members of Knesset and Arab candidates for elections who do not accept Israel, who do not recognize Israel as a legitimate Jewish state. According to the law, they should not be allowed to run for election. Despite the law, the Supreme Court has over, over and over again permitted Arab candidates who don't recognize Israel as a legitimate Jewish state to run for election. And that contravenes the letter of the law, which forbids such candidates from participating. So we have here a judicial interpretation, not a law, a judicial interpretation, which overrides a parliamentary law. So that's one example. And what's happened in the streets of the country, as you intimate, David, the chaos in the streets for 12 weeks or so, off and on, by those who oppose judicial reform, who do not believe that the government of Netanyahu has the right to reform the judicial system, despite the fact that the government is legitimately elected by the people in the November 1st, 2022 elections. And so they've been causing havoc, the political left, 
the more radical elements in particular among the political left, causing havoc, harassing politicians, threatening people, blocking roads, declaring the government to be illegitimate. And all of this has been going on in a way in which they are undermining Israeli democracy. Though their catchphrase for their protest against judicial reform is that they are defending democracy, as if to say judicial reform would cancel democracy, and they are defending democracy. But it's the exact opposite. Democracy means you respect the results of the election. They don't respect the results of the election. Therefore, the left itself is taking an anti-democratic position. And we hope somehow things will work out. We don't really see how at the moment. And there will be some consensus agreement and understanding among the government and the opposition in terms of launching some judicial reform. But the judicial reform is necessary. Hardly any honest person can disagree with that in Israel. Yes, I've been uh, in agreement with that, that there's certainly some uh, requirement for judicial reform. We only hope that uh, some kind of compromise can be reached. Well, this is a problem which has not yet been resolved. There was a terrible incident a day or two ago in which a minister of the Israeli government, Neil Balkat, who was a former mayor of Jerusalem, no less, was threatened visiting a hotel in the north of the country in the Galilee. And this is not the first time he was harassed and, and assaulted and threatened. And the, this radical element really has, knows no boundaries, no boundaries. No, they have not been arrested. They have not been charged with crimes of disruption and threat and, and so on. And so this uh, problem goes on. One of the worst aspects of this protest has been officers in the army, pilots no less, have said that they will not uh, serve if the judicial reform is actually legislated. And if you ask them, why not? What does this have to do with your job as a pilot? Well, they've been carried along in this mania, in this ecstasy of, of, of hatred for the right, for the government, for Netanyahu, and so on. Just no sense of any balance or proportion in what they're saying. As a result of that, those who are on the right and those who are on the left can hardly find any basis for dialogue these days. But when a pilot says, I'm not going to fly the plane, if you send me on a mission to attack an Iranian target in Syria because of judicial reform, well, you ask yourself, you know, what kind of world are we really living in? And how did this happen that people were, have been so brainwashed and lost a sense of their common sense and national responsibility when judicial reform has hardly anything that will touch the daily life of any Israeli if indeed it's legislated? So this whole thing has been blown out of proportion and people have lost a sense a common sense, really, of what this reform is about. There are many politicians and public prisoners who are to blame for this uh, terrible anarchy which has hit Israel. People who are guilty for causing this disruption, fomenting this hatred, distorting the issue completely. I would hope that these people would be called to account, even though I want to believe in the long run. Havat uh, Israel, the love of Israel, the love of fellow Jews, should really win out over the long haul because we're one people and obviously have to live together and want to live together and keep building our country. I thank you once again, Mordecai, for talking to me here on the Israel Connection. You've, your wise words have, uh, have certainly, I think, echoed uh, uh, in uh, in my head, and will I'll be happy to channel them to my listeners as well. Thank you, David. It's a pleasure to see you and be with you, and best wishes to you and all your people. 
My next guest is Freya Leach, a student at the University of Sydney who was physically obstructed while attempting to display an Israeli flag on her laptop at a meeting of the Student Representative Council at the University of Sydney, which is a hotbed of anti-Israel sentiment. I'm really delighted to welcome Freya Leach to the Israel Connection. And I'm talking to you, Freya, you're a, uh, uh, doing a combined degree in Commerce and Law at the University of Sydney. Uh, and uh, you're you're in your third year, I understand. That's right. Thanks for having me on. It's really a pleasure having a, a young, vibrant person on on my show. What I uh, wanted to get into was a meeting that took place at the Student Representative Council at the University of Sydney recently. You were there. Why were you there and what happened? I was there because every year you have about 37 councillors elected to the Sydney Uni Representative Council, which is short form for that is SRC. And I'm not an elected councillor, but I was there as a proxy for someone. So I was filling in and I knew that there would be some motions about Israel coming up. And so I thought, well, I'd like to be in the room when those are happening. And so I was there. It was at about 10 p.m. last Wednesday night. Yeah, and they passed a motion about the Nakba, commemorating the Nakba, which for them, they think that means the start of an apartheid Israeli state. Obviously, we know that is absolutely not true. And on the 75th anniversary of Israel's independence, it was a very uh, disappointing and insensitive uh, thing for them to to do too. Um, and then after passing the motion, they... The whole room, so everyone except for five people who are part of the, not even conservative, it's not really political, it's it's sort of just not crazy socialist left wing, everyone except for us, so about 32 people got up with their fists in the air and started chanting from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, while someone at the front of the room tried to take a photo of them all. I saw this, I was absolutely absolutely outraged my grandma was a refugee that fled germany in 1938 like i i have a jewish family i just thought this was disgusting and so i proceeded to get a photo of the israeli flag up on my laptop and attempted to hold it up so that in the background of the photo you'd still see this israeli flag at which point another socialist from in front of me jumped onto my desk, onto the table in front of me, stood up and attempted to obstruct me as I tried to hold up my Israeli flag. Uh, And the whole incident was (laughs) quite bizarre and really, really disturbing. And it was just this sort of glimpse at what's really going on on university campuses. So there were a few other people besides yourself who didn't quite agree with uh, the sentiments being expressed at the the meeting. Mm. Yeah. yeah, no, there were, thankfully. We were all, we're all members of the Sydney University Conservative Club, uh, which really is sort of the only pro-Israel political group on campus. Even Labor at UCID is very anti-Israel. So uh, I understand, what, I, I've seen that um, Orgis, Australian Union of Jewish Students, uh, spoke out about this and some of our community leaders Do you you have a role with uh, the Australian Union of Jewish Students as well? Yes, I'm involved in Orgis at Sydney Uni and I'm on the political team on the Orgis exec at at our university. Orgis wasn't involved in this particular incident because it was uh, 
at the SRC, which is a political sort of students forum. And Orgis is obviously a not political organization. So yes, but it's good. I was really happy to see that community members and leaders were coming out to condemn it because I know I posted the video initially on my Instagram and I had a lot of Jewish students sharing it and rep- and sending it to news outlets and Instagram accounts like Stop Antisemitism or I Stand With Us. And so the video actually got hundreds of thousands of views because of members of the Jewish community seeing it and just honestly, it's such it was such a disturbing video. Yeah, I, I haven't actually seen it yet, but I'm uh, I'm keen to to do that, and maybe I'll be able to share it with my mm. listeners as well uh, once once I've got it in hand. Have you experienced any other incidents at as a student at the university yourself? Myself, personally, I've never had such a direct uh, anti-Semitic sort of attack before. But if you go I mean, I know plenty of other students that have. Luckily, I haven't. But if you go to Sydney Uni campus at any given moment, you'll see, honestly, dozens and dozens of posters advertising events, explaining why Israel's an apartheid state, pro-Palestine posters. Like, you basically would not think that Israel is even a country that should exist. If you went to Sydney Uni campus and you just looked around, what is being displayed on our campus, it's pretty terrible. That in itself, framing Israel as an apartheid state, uh, being openly in support of the BDS movement and passing motions that call for the eradication of the state of Israel and then chanting terror chants, I think that's pretty bad. And it basically goes unaddressed. And I think the university administration just sort of writes it off as kids being kids, whatever. But the problem is this is all some young people see about Israel. And so you wonder how this is going to affect their long-term perceptions of Israel. And that's really concerning for me. Yeah, according to the article the, uh, that I've seen in the Jewish News about this incident, the uh, New South Wales Jewish Board of Deputies CEO, Darren Bach, met with the Vice-Chancellor in December last year in discussions about a number of issues on this. But I think uh, nothing much seems to have materialise from those discussions and furthermore I don't believe that the University of Sydney is on the cards to adopt the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance working definition on anti-Semitism either. Yeah well you're exactly right I don't think anything's changed and from my experience as a student it's as bad as it's ever been if not worse after this incident so yeah. Tell me about another student that you know who did experience uh, an incident which was very intimidating. Mm, Yeah. Uh, So or just actually ran an event uh, on campus at Sydney Uni talking about anti-Semitism on campus and sort of how to deal with it and what to do and just sharing experiences. And one of the Israeli girls there told us about a time when her class knew she was Israeli and one time after class, she looks in her backpack and someone had actually drawn a swastika on a piece of paper and put it into her bag because they knew she was Israeli. That's the worst uh, instance of anti-Semitism that I've heard of at Sydney Uni. And I think for her as an Israeli student, uh, it was really, really uh, horrible. General 
climate uh, that you've been describing uh, for Jewish students doesn't sound to be that that friendly. It seems extremely uh, in, intimidating environment to be there as a student. Do you have any engagement at all with the, these people who are on the other side expressing these these anti-Israel uh, points of view? Do, do you ever genuinely talk to one another about your views on the issue? Unfortunately, no. It's really, really hard to because for them, they see the world in such a two-dimensional view. They see either you're good or bad. It's, you know, it's right or wrong. You either totally agree with us or you disagree with us. Therefore, you must be bad. And I can't actually describe to you the emotion uh, that they that they have when they're engaging in these debates. Like they genuinely believe that Israel is evil and that Palestinians are uh, there's a new Holocaust occurring against Palestinians. Like that is how how strongly they feel. And it actually makes engagement impossible. So we, with our SRC counsellors that are not part of this <laughs> crazy anti-Israel coalition, we try to pass motions uh, that are sensible and that do lead to productive debate. But what the rest, what the other 32 councillors will do is pass a motion to move our motions to the back of the agenda. And then the meeting has to end at midnight. Either we won't get time to actually discuss them, or if we do, then they'll say, can we put those motions on notice and deal with them at the next meeting, at which point they'll repeat the same process. So we try to engage with them. We try to actually create productive debates. But they really, they do not want to hear it. And if there's even, if they're even challenged, it basically, the room erupts into this emotional cesspool of anti-Semitism and screaming. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a, a pleasant place to, to, to be in at, at all. No. You've, got a, you've, got a, you've got a student uh, newspaper there uh, on Israel that I uh, peruse every now and again. That, uh, publishes I'm a sorry. Of I'm sorry you're perusing it. <laughs> <laughs> you, do you, uh, every now and again, uh, do you get something uh, in there that counters this uh, mass uh, hysteria and propaganda against Israel? No, not at all. In fact, Honey Swart, so at this, ex at this same SRC meeting, Honey Swart was criticised for not being, so it's, its mandate is to be a radical left-wing student newspaper. That's its mandate. There's no, there's no pretend objectivity or neutrality. Its mandate is to be a radical left-wing student newspaper. At this meeting, the, and you said student politics is basically defined by how left-wing are you? Are you like far left or are you psycho extreme left? And that's pretty much the, the spectrum. The, the psycho extreme left was criticizing Honey Soir for not being radical enough and not being, not being left wing enough. Uh, and then the socialist who was making these accusations held up the latest edition of the Honey Soir newspaper. And on the back was a Palestinian flag 
advertising one of these events talking about how Israel is an apartheid state that shouldn't exist. Uh, and then everyone just laughed at him uh, because everyone knows Honiswa really is radical and extremely left-wing. So the problem is Honiswa, the editorial team is actually elected by the student body. So it basically becomes another outpost of this sort of left-wing cabal on campus. Uh, and basically the newspaper's as bad as any of the councillors and they're all anti-Israel. I don't think they've ever written a nice thing about Israel and certainly not about anyone who supports Israel. You've given a pretty bleak uh, picture of what it's like to be a student. Is there any hope, do you, do you, would you say, uh, or is just things are going to continue as you've been describing? Mm, I think there are pockets of hope. There are students on campuses that don't agree with this. Obviously, Orgis is a great body for that. But there are also, within the sort of political sphere on campus, there are groups that are pro-Israel. They tend to sit on the right or be conservative, and that's just the way things are on campuses. Like, the, the whole left has just been totally captured by this far-left anti-Israel sentiment. But I, I do think there are some students that look around and they're just sick of it because... People know that this isn't a depiction of reality. What these students are proposing, the fact that there's a Holocaust going on in Israel or that it's an apartheid state or that Jews are the new Nazis, people have said that before. They've called me a neo-Nazi, in fact, at this exact same meeting just for supporting Israel. I think there are some students that are willing to stand up to this stuff, but it's hard because you do face social ostracization and targeting. So there's this anonymous platform called UCID Rants on Facebook where anyone can post anything anonymously. Uh, and I've become a subject of considerable discussion on there. And people will post all sorts of really, really mean things. And in any other context, it would actually be defamation. Honey Swa said that I was on, on their own Instagram story was saying I was making racist remarks all evening at the SRC meeting. That's not true. I just support Israel. But they, they're willing to defame you to and discredit you to try and shut down any position that opposes their own. So I think it's really scary for students. And in a digital age where everything's recorded on the internet forever, lots of people do not actually want to stand up to this stuff because of what people could say about you online that will be out there forever. Well, I really appreciate you giving me some of your time to tell me about uh, what's uh, been going on at the University of Sydney and what the outlook is. And mm -hmm. I think uh, my, my listeners should be uh, keeping an eye on, on your career and seeing uh, where, where you go oh. Israel-wise and uh, politically as well. I think uh, you're a, a, a bright light on the, on the horizon, Freya. I thank you very much for talking to me today. Thank you, David. Thank you so much. Until next week, it's goodbye from the Israel Connection.